Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to The Book Pod with Corey Perkin, the fortnightly podcast that brings readers and writers together. Today we acknowledge the traditional owners of the Boon Wurrung Nation where this podcast is produced and pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. I'm Corey Perkin, this is The Book Pod and welcome to today's episode which sees us travelling to London to chat with historian and best-selling author Dr Helen Rappaport. Helen's new book, After the Romanovs, Russian Exiles in Paris Between the Wars, has just arrived in Australia with a beautiful blue and gold cover and comes accompanied by some very impressive reviews. An engaging group biography, Rappaport is a mistress of the telling details, said the Washington Post. The Wall Street Journal wrote, Rappaport, a prolific historian and highly regarded Romanov expert, unveils a Paris in which Russians had long played a prominent role. And Kirkus Reviews says a culturally vibrant account of Russians uprooted to Paris during a tumultuous time. One of my favourite uh, reviews was by John Tamney in Forbes, who said, read Rappaport's excellent book to develop a better sense of why they did what they did and what became of the people who helped shape the Russia of old. What a story. Helen Rappaport, it's lovely to have you with us. What a story indeed. Yes, it, it, it is very, very absorbing. And I found incredibly sad, almost tragic in places, because it, it, it's such a tale of dispossession and flight and and people losing their homeland. I mean, there are obvious parallels today with the Ukrainian crisis. And um, you can't help but be moved by so many of the people in the story who literally left with virtually nothing and struggled through terrible poverty. And, and, and there's this extraordinary Russian characteristic I found throughout the research, this longing to go home, this longing for Mother Russia, and, and many of them could never come to terms with that. Well, it's a, you, you do explore not just that period after the 1917 revolution, which, of course, you know, set the Soviet Union on its course that we now know so well in the 20th, 21st century. But you also talk about that amazing period 
I would say La Belle Epoque, but that time in Paris when, when it was just so alive culturally and socially and the Russians were right in the thick of it. You are the perfect person to write this, Helen. 14 books and, of course, you're a regular contributor to history and documentary programs. And your special subject, I suppose, if you don't mind me saying, is that that century, that 100-year period, the 1830s yeah. to, the, to 1918, 1920. And, of course, many of us are familiar with your books on uh, Queen Victoria and that time in Victorian Britain, but also your ongoing study and interest in imperial and revolutionary Russia. So I wondered, what was it about this particular group of Russians? Firstly, the aristocratic and artistic tourists to Paris, and then later after 1917, the exiles, the ones that you just spoke of, um, the ones you feel sorry for. What is it about all of those stories in Paris in the middle that intrigued you? Well, I think the first thing I decided when I wanted was going to do the book is that I felt I needed to show the massive cultural impact of Russians in Paris and that took place before revolution because Paris had always been a cultural watering hole for the Russians and a lot of very interesting Russians gravitated there in the 1900s particularly artists and 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 the, the, the arrival of Ballet Russe is like a complete bomb dropping on Paris, a bomb dropping on, on the traditions of the ballet music. They turned everything upside down. And that, I thought that it was really important to have that strong sense of contrast between the freedom of wealthy Russians going to Paris before the First World War and the very different now impoverished Russians. Many of them, the same people who'd been there in the 1900s returned later with nothing. And um, so I felt that this was the final part of a long progress I'd been making through late Imperial Russia and the story of the Romanovs, because although the book's called after the Romanovs, that was the choice of my American publishers, it's obviously not just about them. But I felt that that was the final part of the story, I what happened after the revolution to those aristocrats um, who managed to get out. Of course, there has been a wonderful book written about the ones who were trapped and horribly persecuted by Doug Smith called Former People. But the story of those who escaped and what happened to them, I felt brought brings full circle my, oh, I hate that word journey, but my voyage, my exploration of the, the Romanov the late imperial story and I've now written 16 books actually and I'm, oh, I'm sorry <laughs> well the, the two out this year of 15 That's and right. 16 I, not many authors matter. not many authors have two books coming out in the one year so my apologies <laughs> yeah <laughs> hey Helen but, I was so interested that Russia's love affair with Paris really began you dated back to Peter the Great going there visiting Paris in 1717 and you yeah. point out that he totally fell in love with Versailles. I mean, you know, he's, yeah. not, he's not alone there. But that this whole French culture was something that completely intrigued him. Tell me about that and then the journey to, to then the, the 19th century. Well, I can't really tell you much about Peter the Great's time because that was just a, a bit of um, context that I gave to the book. What is really interesting, and I think it explains why, French and Paris and French culture was so 
had such an impact on pre-revolutionary uh, pre Russia is, of course, the fact that the Russian aristocracy spoke French. And this is all to do with Peter the Great basing uh, the inspiration for St. Petersburg on, you know, Versailles and on, you know, the, what he'd seen in Europe on on, 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 on those grand cities like Venice, the waterways of Venice. He was very much inspired by European art and culture, as of course was Catherine the Great later. She was an enormous Francophile who corresponded with French writers like Voltaire and Diderot, hired French artists, architects, bought loads of French art. So the cultural connection to France was very strong but at court of course you only have to read or even watch the films of Tolstoy's War and Peace all the aristocracy is speaking French they spoke better French in fact than they did Russian but the real explosion of Russian interest in Paris came after the end of the Crimean War because during the Crimean War of 1854 to 6 France and Britain were, of course, fighting against Russia. So Russia was the big bogey, was, you know, persona non grata. But after the first big Paris exhibition in the late 1860s, a lot of wealthy Russians started flooding in. And the writer Turgenev, Ivan Turgenev, settled in Paris and adored Paris. And many of the Russian aristocrats who went back and forth there because they loved Cartier and Worth and all the dining out at the Ritz and all these other posh places. You know, they bought properties there, they bought apartments in Paris. So the Russians felt very comfortable in France, in Paris. And of course, the other thing was in France, for the Russian artists who went, they were much more free to express themselves because they were removing themselves from the Tsarist control, Tsarist depression and you know political censorship so Paris was this wonderful welcoming place for people who were dissidents as well. Well your, your stories from around that time from that that turn of the century period the late 19th century and then the turn of the century reminds us how much fun it it must have been in Paris during La Belle Epoque if you had a bit of money. If you had the money. <laughs> That's right. And you, and you say Paris <laughs> operated as one large private club. I love that line. And I wondered, of all, your, your book is so beautifully feathered and just these little brushstrokes of, of portraits of characters at this time, various aristocrats and amusing anecdotes and sometimes sad ones as well. But certainly the expansive wealth that was so evident. My mind turns to Grand Duke Paul and his second wife, Olga. Was there yeah. no end to that couple's spending? And in fact, Olga's diaries are now in the State Archives in Moscow, I believe. But you talk yeah. about you talk about those diaries being an endless catalogue of self-indulgence. <laughs> it was one big shopping trip for her. Olga, I mean, it's a, they are really the most perfect example of the fall of the old Tsarist power and how things were so dramatically changed because when Olga and Grand Duke Paul came to Paris, it was nothing but the best. They actually feature briefly in Marcel Proust's great book, A la recherche du temps perdu. They were probably top draw Russians in Paris of the day. Just remind us, he was the brother of Tsar Alexander II, is that correct? 
uh, Alexander the Third. Under Alexander the Third. So Nicholas, yeah. the last Tsar's uncle. So he was the uncle of Nicholas the Second, and he was actually a rather strange and dignified man. But his there was no end to his wife's ability to spend their money, and they were great patrons of the arts. And they had this fabulous house in the Bois de Boulogne, and they just went round the the Paris uh, art and antiques houses and stashed the place full of glorious sculptures and you know paintings and gorgeous objet d'art and porcelain china and entertained all the top drawer French high society figures, the people in Marcel Proust's book. And Olga, of course, her favourite dress designer was Worth. She couldn't resist jewels from Cartier. She had sackloads of all this gorgeous stuff. And of course, the huge irony after the revolution is, well, it's more than ironic, it's, it's, it's tragic. Paul was arrested because the first thing the Bolsheviks did was round up the Romanov family and started systematically murdering them all. Paul was arrested, incarcerated and shot. Olga managed to get out in greatly reduced circumstances, went back to the house at the Bois de Boulogne and had to sell it, of course. So her story is much like many of the other aristocrats in that the one bit of collateral they had when they fled were their jewels. So many of them fled pretty much in what they stood up in with their jewels sewn or concealed in their clothes or their minimal amounts of baggage. And they all thought they're going to be able to live off their lovely, fabulous jewels for years and years. But of course, there were loads and loads of other aristocrats displaced during World War One. You know, the, the monarchies of Germany fell, Austria, Hungary. And so there were lots of other dispossessed aristocrats all flogging their jewels off as well. And the price, the value went down. And, you know, people were moaning that, you know, great necklaces that they thought would last them years and years as they pawned them ran out very quickly. Well, your book very much indicates to me this, this divide, the Russian, you, you kind of, I feel like you divided the Russians in your book into the two groups there is the pre-revolutionary aristocrats, their support of the arts. They saw Paris as a playground. They were great benefactors, as you say, fashionable, chic, collectors of jewellery, paintings and so on. And then there are the post-revolution exiles, those lucky enough to escape the Reds. And let's face it, a lot of them were rounded up and shot. I mean, you mentioned Paul. All of, yeah. um, I think all of Nicholas's uncles were shot, or maybe one, I can't remember, maybe one survived. Uh, I can't, I, I'm, I'm trying to think. No, no, a couple, a couple of them died before the revolution, if I recall. Um, but I, I was interested reading the Washington Post review of your book, which is a terrific review. It's just like reading, you know, it was long form journalism. I loved it. But they refer to this post revolutionary exiled group in Russia as a melancholy crowd. They were, they were yeah. very melancholic. And, and you've got to remember that it wasn't just the aristocracy who fled. Uh, it basically what happened, and it's happening a bit now, was you had the cream of the intelligentsia, the dissidents, the people who hated the Bolsheviks. They weren't necessarily monarchists, but they hated the Bolsheviks. The, so Russia at that time, between the revolution and 1920, when there was the last 
big exodus, lost the cream of its professional classes, doctors, lawyers, university professors, writers, artists, musicians. They lost all the best of their brains in a way, scientists too. And these people, this is the tragedy. All of them, even the aristocrats arrive in Paris but they don't have skills that they can necessarily use in France. First of all, because the French blocked them immediately working in their chosen professions, they had to get permits or in fact become naturalized in order to pursue them. But mainly, you know, I mean, for the aristocrats, what, what could they do? These, all these white Russian officers who'd fled with Rang the remnants of General Wrangel's army when it was defeated, Really, the only jobs they could get were driving taxis. It's such an interesting part of the book, Helen. Your, research, your research is wonderful and the stories of, of people saying, your face is familiar to the man who's washing the car or the taxi driver and it yeah. turns out they actually went to his palace. Or, I mean, it's, just, <laughs> it's, 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 it is really confronting, actually. You know, it, it's, it's a reminder that the war or the revolution had had its victims within Russia, but also outside of it, the people who yeah. thought they could never come home, that incredible sadness, which of course, well, it's it's happening everywhere now. It's happening with the people of Ukraine who have had to flee. Well, it's happening with the Russian dissidents now who are against the war. Uh, over 200,000 have left. Uh, I think people are less aware of the Russians who are leaving because obviously the emphasis is on Ukrainian refugees, but lots of Russians are leaving and they're going south. They're going to Georgia, they're going to Armenia, they're going to Turkey. And it's the same issue. And, and it's another kind of small brain drain, drain, if you like, because it's exactly the same kind of professional educated people who are leaving as who left then. But there was this wonderful kind of saying in Paris in the 20s and 30s with all these Russians coming in that the men drove taxis and the women sewed for a living and what so I loved about the story because I'm a feminist I guess is that so many times you see the women being far more able and enterprising at getting work and ending up supporting the men because the extraordinary thing is all these aristocratic ladies fleeing Russia they did at least have one talent. You know, as young girls brought up by governesses, they were all taught to sew. And of course, the other thing was that the, the, the Paris fashion trade embraced these beautiful Russian women and they got work as mannequins as well. And so there's this wonderful period where Russian art and talent infiltrates fashion and Coco Chanel picked up on this glorious Slavic style embroidery that the women could do. Women like Grand Duchess Maria Pavlovna, top drawer aristocracy, a daughter of Grand Duke Paul by his first marriage. And she did quite well for a while in the fashion trade. And some of them did. Some of them left Paris and they went to different parts of the world. But some also, I was so surprised, some went home in the 20s and 30s, which I just found staggering. Well, that is generally, it falls into two groups because, as I've said, that a lot of Russians of the older generation struggled with terrible nostalgia for home and they couldn't adjust. They didn't learn French. They stayed in their little closed communities. 
And for some of them, there was such a desperate longing to go back to Russia that they were willing to go back in the 30s. Uh, but unfortunately, they weren't going to the Russia, back to the Russia they knew. They were going to high Stalinist Russia, at that, you know, in the period of the repressions and the purges. And, and that must have been very, very difficult. A few went back and, and adjusted. One or two went back and became quite successful. For example, the writer Alexei Tolstoy went back and became quite an apparatchik, a, a conformist writer, won Lenin, you know, Stalin prizes and this, that and the other. If you went back and towed the line, you had more chance of adjusting. But others went back uh, really to die. They wanted to die back home in Russia. And it is very sad. Helen, you mentioned the 200,000 uh, Russians of academic creative, the dissidents, the ones who can't stay there at the moment, who there's this massive diaspora as we speak out of Russia. What sort of numbers can you, can you tell us? What, what, what happened um, in, this, in this kind of post-1917 period? How many Russians were in Paris well, it's very, yeah, unfortunately, no one kept accurate figures of the Russian emigration. It's certainly known that during the period from 1917, the revolution through to 1920, when was the last big evacuation, over a million Russians were displaced and went into Europe. And they spread out around the diaspora, as you said, an awful lot went to Berlin initially because it was closer. And many moved from Berlin to Paris in the 20s as the uh, economic difficulties in German, you know, they have this terrible galloping inflation. There are also quite a lot of Russians in Prague, in what was former Yugoslavia. Some went to Serbia, particularly elements of the White Russian Army went to Serbia. There was quite an enclave there. Others went to Rome. And London. London was a smaller centre, but quite a significant one. It's not till later that you get them going to America, because what happens is that the community in France, in Paris, by 1930 was about 43,000, they reckon, but it's only a guesstimate. There may have been as many as 100,000 Russians across France by then, but certainly Paris by 1930 was the hub of the emigration. But what happens is 1939, war breaks out, the Germans start moving across Europe. And when the Germans were about to invade Paris, a lot of Russians had to leave again. So there's like a second emigration, particularly of Russians who were Jewish, you know, in origin or had Jewish family members. The writer Vladimir Nabokov had to leave because of his Jewish wife. And it's at that point, 1940-ish, you start getting a lot of Russians going to America and, and New York and even on to California. So there was a huge movement. And of course, the other thing I didn't mention at the, at the very beginning, in 1920, when they were evacuated from Odessa, Novorossiysk, Yalta, Sevastopol, across the Black Sea, to Constantinople, as it then was, i.e. Istanbul, a lot of Russians were stranded in Istanbul for one year, two years, before they could go on to somewhere else. So, And in fact, there were a lot, quite a large settlement of white Russian army in and around uh, Lemnos and in, in Tunisia. So not all of them found a safe haven straight away. 
it was very, very difficult if you had no money. And as you say, the jewels, if they were lucky enough to have jewels, they didn't get you very far. I love uh, this quote in Chapter 6 of your book, which the chapter is called Paris is Full of Russians, quote, unquote. And (laughs) you quote Ernest Hemingway, who, as we know, was in Paris in the early 20s uh, as a young American writer in a garret, starving to death. But, gosh, if it wasn't for his wife, Hadley, I don't know where he would be. But he wrote he wrote this uh, piece for the Toronto Star in 1922, and he says, they, being the Russians, they are drifting along in Paris in a childish, childish sort of hopefulness that things will somehow be all right, which is quite charming when you first encounter it and rather maddening after a few months. No one knows just how they live except by selling off jewels and gold ornaments and family heirlooms that they bought with them to France. He absolutely captured that kind of aimless sadness of many of the Russians, that they're just an inability to really adjust and this terrible longing and living in hope. Uh, you, you see time and again of the older generation living in hope that Bolshevism would collapse, that Lenin, Lenin's government would, would be overturned or would just fail, and that they'd all, you know, somehow the mythical white army would go galloping back in and the old Russia they'd loved would be restored. I don't think many clung to that, fe- that feeling that the actual old Russia and Tsarism would be restored, but nevertheless, these hopes lingered for years and years and years that they would be able to go back. You're listening to The Book Pod, an audio community that brings writers and readers together. There's a beautiful anecdote in your book, and I wondered if you could tell the listeners of uh, Duchess Olga, I think it was Olga, she of many, many jewels, attending auctions in art houses and seeing her work her possessions from Russia, which the Bolsheviks were flogging, the market was flooded, as we know, in the 1920s, but attending auctions where former possessions of hers were being sold. Was it Olga? It was um, Grand Duke Paul's wife, Olga, Princess Parley. I'm not sure if she actually attended the auction, but she heard about this that you see when she uh when paul was arrested and murdered she fled russia but but even before that the bolsheviks had confiscated all the grand houses mansions and palaces of all the romanovs and the aristocracy and just helped themselves you know to all the contents so can you imagine how galling it was for her by then in the 20s she had been suffering from breast cancer for quite a time and then hearing that there was a state Soviet kind of export agency set up by Lenin and the Soviets to flog off the family jewels, as it were, flog off a lot of Romanov and other valuables to raise money to fund the new Soviet state. And they, this, this, this agency was actually dealing with the auction houses in Europe and sending this stuff to be sold. And she put in a protest when she heard that actually she identified her own her own art treasures being sold off. I think it was in London. I'd have to check it in the book, but um, there was this rather poignant story where she protested, but of course there was nothing she could do. And this happened everywhere. It's terribly sad. And, and just something that you said before struck me that how important it was to these exiles that, that they keep their Russia alive. 
And, and even after the revolution, to be engaged with its politics and connected to one another, possibly in the hope that one day they, they could return. And then you say during the 90s and, uh, 1920s and 1930s, many of the younger generation of Russian emigres had found little to identify with in any of the older generation. Can you expand yeah. on that a bit? Well, I think for the younger generation, they just got a bit fed up with hearing their parents and grandparents constantly moaning on about the good old days under the czar. I mean, in a way, it was this perpetual state of denial of not coming to terms with what had happened and trying to rebuild uh, and create a new life for oneself. And some Russians, particularly the writer Nina Berberova, who wrote the most brilliant memoir of, of this time and that generation, got fed up with it. She said they just sit there moaning and groaning and thinking about the old days and not, not getting on with their lives, not picking up their lives again. But I think the biggest problem with the older generation was they gravitated to their own fellow Russians. They went to the Rue Daru to church on Sunday, the big Orthodox church. They carried on speaking Russian, whereas the children, of course, went to school, learned French and, and mixed and integrated. And quite a few took French nationality. One particular writer who did extraordinarily well was uh, an actual Russian Armenian who whose family fled, and he became the writer Henri Troyat, Henry Troyat, whichever way you want to pronounce it, who wrote who who became a very fine historian and writer and won the Prix Goncourt and stuff. So by the time you get to the 40s and 50s with the older generation dying up you've got a new generation of of french russians or russian french i don't know which way you want to call it who who really were were turning their backs on all that nostalgia and grief they they didn't want to have to deal with this perpetual sense of grief and they got on with their lives i suppose i'm drawing on your research with other books and your lifetime of academic curiosity about the death of Tsar Nicholas and his wife Alexandra and their children which of course has, has captivated popular culture in so many different ways but also historians as well the thought that an that an army could actually murder a royal family like that in the way that they did i wondered what sort of impact it had on the Russian aristocrats who were in Paris at the time, did, did they sense that, that this was coming? Did they sense that things were going to be this bad? Or what, is it a, a bit more, as you were alluding to earlier, they felt that sometime they would be able to go home, that the White Army would, would take them home on a chariot and their houses would be restored to them and all would be fine again? Well, as far as um, the, the demise of Tsarism and the fall of Nicholas and Alexandra is concerned, many in the Russian aristocracy were in denial. But uh, uh, quite a lot of the closer members of the imperial family knew they were on the edge of the volcano. And that if Nicholas and Alexandra did not make concessions and bring in some decent democratic reforms and a, a more constitutional kind of government, that, that they were doomed. I mean, even in the book, I think I say the French, to be French, ambassador Maurice Paléolog had dinner with Grand Duke Paul and Olga in 1905. And they said then, you know, we're doomed. We know it, the, the game's up. 
they knew it was coming. They knew the revolution was coming, and and they that that, that they would have to flee. So I and don't. And think... Isn't it interesting that Olga and Paul went back to? Well, this is the awful thing. This they is took the all awful. of their possessions and all their wealth from Paris and took it home to Russia just before the revolution. Well, they they went back in 1912, and the reason they went back was their their permanency in France before that had been basically enforced on them because of the morganatic marriage that they had contracted. Because Olga was not an aristocrat, she was not a princess of the blood or a grand duchess. And Nicholas had actually forbade Paul from marrying her and she was a divorcee. And they ran, ran off to get married abroad. And so therefore they were persona non grata in Russia for quite a long time. Nicholas quite quickly forgave Paul but he didn't forgive Olga for quite a long time. But eventually she was forgiven and given this title, Princess Parley. He was, she was never allowed to be called Grand Duchess. So they were allowed back. And so they went back in style. She was now Princess Parley. They were forgiven. They built a fantastic palace out at Saskia-Silot just before war, stashed it with all their gorgeous French treasures. Mind you, they still had the house in the Bois de Boulogne. They didn't empty it. They didn't empty it. They just took the best bits back to Russia. And because they, you know, they wanted to reclaim their position in the Russian aristocracy. You know, exile in Paris was all very nice. But, you know, being back in the heart of Mother Russia uh, within the imperial family was what they both craved. So they took that risk. And unfortunately, of course, it was Paul's death sentence. I'm speaking with Helen Rappaport in the UK and she's written a wonderful book that has just arrived on bookshelves here in Australia after the Romanovs, Russian Exiles in Paris Between the Wars. Helen, let's go, let's go to the artistic and creative worlds and let's go to Diaghilev's Ballet Russe, which, of course, had been sponsored. He had largely been sponsored by Paul and Olga during his time living in France. So many of the stories, as you say, of the Paris immigration involved artistic and creative types, and you say they were never allowed the chance to breathe or flourish, stunted by adversity, sickness, poverty, success stories, a few. And even with Diaghilev's Ballet Russe, which had such success, it struggled to live on after his death in 1929. Yeah, I think you have to, to divide it because the ones who really struggled artistically were the ones who fled in the 20s and 30s. They just couldn't earn a living. And the, the diaspora was so small, their readership shrunk, shrunk from millions in Russia when they'd been in People like Boonin had had an enormous readership. But in, in France, even his readership shrunk down to nothing. The, uh, the artists who were there before the war had a much broader base, a much broader fan base. Diaghilev was an enormous success and toured the world. I mean, he'd soon established a regular season, I think, in Monte Carlo. He went to London as well. But he had to pretty much transfer the ballet because of the war breaking out. So the, the real great artistic successes are very interesting because a lot of them were Jewish emigres who left artists and sculptors who left before the war 
not so much because of repressions in Russia, but because Russian orthodoxy uh, frowned on artistic creativity and invention and experimentation. And so people like Chagall went to Paris and did very well very quickly and pretty much supported all his impoverished artistic friends who couldn't scrape, to, you know, <laughs> enough for a cup of tea. So, um, you know, there, there was... a there was a success story in the earlier period because some of those artists and sculptors then went on to America and Chagall did, of course. Stravinsky, who had enormous success with Diaghilev, went to America. Some of the dancers, I think, went on to London. And yes, some, some of them ended up in Australia, actually, and yeah. they, were, they were the beginning, they, they, they were involved in the beginning of the Australian ballet. It is incredibly sad to think that there have been these waves back then and, of course, now, as you said, with this mass exodus from Russia, from those who, uh, who opposed the war with Ukraine. But there are these mass exiles, these mass diasporas, they leave. I mean, what does it do to Russian culture every time the tap is turned and off they go? Well, of course, the other big, big cultural drain happened in the the big third wave, I think it was, because the second wave of the emigration was when the Nazis came and a lot went to America then. And, and so a few got out, of course, under Stalin. But the next huge wave of Russian emigration, intellectual emigration, was, of course, during the Cold War of the 70s with all the, the refuseniks, the Jewish dissidents, the poets and artists and writers who fled, and many of whom went to Israel. So there's always been a cultural emigration and yet despite that we still have this incredible I won't quite call it a monolith because that sounds ugly but we have this go gorgeous wonderful inspiring Russian literature you can't take away from it but of course it's not so much a modern literature, it's the great classics of Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, Anton Chekhov, the artists, the musicians, Tchaikovsky, Ramanikov, Rachmaninoff, Stravinsky. Okay, some of them went abroad, but you can never destroy that great powerhouse of creativity that Russia has given the world. And that's the thing, uh, you know, I personally worry about now is this new Iron Curtain that's descended, that's cutting us off culturally, intellectually, his, uh, from that wonderful fertile exchange we have had with Russia since the end of the Cold War. It's difficult to comprehend, firstly, that a, that a, that a country has made such a significant cultural contribution to all yeah. of our lives, but that this, again, the terms of the oppressors are that there's just no place for it that people feel they have to to leave to have freedom of expression and yet yeah. when, they take, when they're taken away from their audience uh, which they, they lose so much that's right they lose purpose this is, this is the heart of the problem there were several writers I found who said the same thing when they were confronted with uh, with this awful separation in Paris or Berlin or wherever they went they would say, like Hadasievich, a great poet, he said, I can't write here, but I can't write there. You know, I'm stifled there creatively and politically, but I can't write here because Paris isn't Russia and I need my landscape. I need my audience. I need the inspiration of Russia. 
And it's a very emotional, even romantic Russian thing, but you see it time and time again. People like Pasternak, when he won the Nobel Prize for Dr. Zhivago, he refused to leave and go to Stockholm to collect it because he, 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 he was terrified that the Soviets wouldn't let him back in again. And he said, I, if I can't bear the thought of being separated from Russia, it would destroy me as a writer. And that's why I think some of them endured or went back um, because there's this extraordinary pull of the motherland, of the raw dinner. And I, it's, it, I'm not saying it doesn't happen with other nations. We all have a strong sense of our, our own landscape and our homeland. I mean, I'm passionate about England, but I don't know, there's something so powerful about the Russian connection to the motherland that maybe it's cause, because they lost so many. I mean, in wars and revolutions, two world wars, revolutions, they lost, what is it, 25 million people? I can't remember the precise figure. Well, I don't think there is a precise one. So I'm just heart sick about what's happening now. I really am. I was just going to say, you know, your book, this new one reminds me so much of, or, or, or just compounds how frequently Crimea has appeared as a war zone in the history of the world. Yeah. It is an epicentre, isn't it? Well, it's also been an area that, bits have been taken by various people over the centuries. I mean, it started with Catherine the Great grabbing bits and uh, Crimea and up through Ukraine, that whole region. Uh, and then the Poles took chunks of it. And then Catherine the Great took a bit more with the, all the different partitions. But Crimea essentially was, uh, became a Russian territory in the, in the 18th century under Catherine the Great. Yeah. But the war has always fascinated me. And although people outside Britain don't really know much about the Crimean War, it's one of those lesser known wars. I find it a particularly poignant and interesting war for many, many reasons. And it did produce an amazing literature. What was it about Russia that drew you as, a, as an historian, as a student, as a child? What was it about Russian history that drew you in? Oh, definitely the mystery of Russia, the, the inaccessibility of Russia. Remember, I grew up, you know, I was a post-war baby boomer. I grew up in the Cold War when Russia was really closed off, an enigma, an impenetrable, there was that terrible Iron Curtain. And I was always fascinated by Russia because I loved the music and the art, and I, I completely fell in love with the, the writers. Anton Chekhov is a great favorite of mine. And so I was very lucky. I was at a girls' grammar school and I was given the chance to study Russian. And I think it was from there that this, I've just had this long, long love affair with Russian culture and the spirituality of Russia and uh, every all the good things about Russia. Can you speak Russian? Yes, I do. I studied Russian at university and I've used my Russian in, in well, five or six books now in researching my books. And when were you first able to visit Russia? What was your first trip? Oh, it took ages. It took me ages to get there because, like I say, in the Cold War, they couldn't get students to Russia when I did my degree, except on very boring grammar courses for a couple of weeks. Or you, there were a very few openings, like with the British Council, you could maybe go for some to some god-awful remote Russian place for a year and be bored senseless, and I didn't fancy that. 
So I opted to do another Slavonic language, which they offered us. We were incredibly lucky. We had such a wonderful degree course. So I did Bulgarian and went to Sofia University for three months. But I didn't go to Russia for the first time until 1998. And I fight, mainly because I'd been a single parent twice and I didn't have the money to go. Getting to Russia, the, you know, then was quite expensive. And eventually I did. I got there and I took my uh, eldest daughter and went to Russia on a Viking cruise up the, you know, from Moscow to Petersburg cruise. And it was fantastic. And then I've been back. Um, you must have felt very emotional on that first trip. I was. I've just... Oh, it just was just the most wonderful experience. And I've, I've been back since, obviously. And now, of course, I'm terribly sad because I don't know when I'll be able to go back again. There are no direct flights to Russia. Uh, well, you can go via Dubai and it costs a fortune, but I don't know if they'd even let us in now. Probably wouldn't even give me a visa to go, but it breaks my heart to think I'll never see Russia again. I hope one day you do, and that sounds like a, a sort of a segue, I guess, into our final question, which we always ask our visiting writers. If you were on a desert island, which book oh. or which author would you take? And my feeling is that you might say somebody Russian, but I could be wrong there. No. Wrong. You might say Mills and Boone, the entire back catalogue. I don't know. Well, it depends how many books you'd allow me. Well, I let's, want let's say you have a reasonable book, a uh, reasonable boat with you. Well, I mean, War and Peace, Peace is wonderful, and I had to read it, obviously, several times for my degree course, but I'm not sure that it would be my choice. I have to say my other great, great love since childhood are the, the 19th century British, uh, English British novelists. So this is a toss-up, I'm afraid, and I cannot choose, but it's got to be either Middlemarch or Bleak House because I just so love the writing. I love Bleak House. Oh, that opening paragraph. Have you ever read a finer opening paragraph? about? Well, I can't. Well, you say oh. it now and I can't take myself back to the opening paragraph, but you can... It's all about the fog on the yeah. river. You can bet it a bit I mean, as I'm going to read here and read it. atmosphere. Oh, what utter genius. Utter, utter genius. And Middlemarch... It's a more difficult book. I mean, George Eliot, when she gets pont starts pontificating and proselytising is very boring, but you can skip those bits. I loved Middlemarch with a passion, though. I have a dear friend who is a philosopher and he has he cannot believe that I owned a bookshop for 12 years and I'd never read Middlemarch. So one day... <laughs> So one day he was in my shop and he said, I'm going to buy you a copy. And I said, no, you don't have to. Like it's stock. I can actually just take it myself. But I only got about 60 pages in. I just was exhausted. So I haven't read it. You've got to stay with it. You can skip bits, but it has moments of a wonder. And I, I, I think it's because I love the characters in it very much. But it, it's, I think, probably Bleak House is an easier read, yeah. Helen, it's been lovely journeying through Paris with you, not only today, but certainly in your book. It's such a fine book. And I, I, hope, you'll forgive you. me, I hope you'll forgive me a moment of national pride. But to our listeners who may not realise, it's published by Scribe. And Scribe is a Melbourne independent publishing house that was set up in the late 70s by Henry Rosenblum, 
who has an incredible eye for new talent, existing talent who might want to go on a different journey with a new publisher. And of course, now that Scribe has a presence in the UK, we're thrilled, Helen, that you signed on with Henry and we have this wonderful book. Did you actually meet Henry Rosenblum from Scribe? Have you met him? No, I haven't met any of them yet because, of course, the book was signed during lockdown or during, during COVID and we, well, there was no chance for any meetings. But I do hope I will get to meet them when it comes out in October. Yeah, well, look, he is, a, he is an absolutely charming man. He is he Australian? Yeah, he's an Aussie and he is the child of Holocaust survivors. And he grew up at the time of enormous change in Australia in the early 70s with Gough Whitlam as our Prime Minister. And, yeah. and he became an advisor, actually. Or actually, I think he started as a press secretary, but then he became an advisor to one of the ministers in this young, vigorous, forward-thinking left-wing party. And then after that government fell rather dramatically, he went into book publishing. He's an absolute ripper. You'll love him. Well, I have to say, I owe Henry and scribe a debt because I had given up hope that any English publishing house would sign that book. I was extraordinarily upset and depressed that they all kept turning it down because I'm proud of that book. And I think it has, uh, has a lot of resonances for readers, especially with what's happening now, of course. So thank you, Scribe. I'm all for the indies. Well, Helen, there's a lot of perspicacious comments in this about where we're at now, you know, with Russian exiles and Ukrainian exiles and it has a very strong message. And as we know, of course, history repeats and repeats and repeats. And mm. you've reminded us just how it does. But it's been lovely chatting with you today. Thank you for joining the book pod. Thank you for being our guest. Oh, and thank you. And one last thing. Don't you think Scribe have produced the most fabulous cover? Oh, well, I said that at the beginning. It's I, 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 I think they are so shrewd because it's coming out in Britain in October. And everyone said to me, including my agent, oh, Christmas market, Christmas market. So I hope I hope that ground floor at Waterstones, if I went in in October or November, I hope it would all be blue and orange with the cover of your oh. beautiful book. I hope so. But, you know, we're in the lap of the gods when it comes to publishing and what pe people will buy. I do hope it gets an audience here. But thank you so much, Australia and New Zealand, for bringing out my book. And I hope everyone down there loves it as much as I enjoyed writing it. Well, we will be your champions. And thank you again, Helen. It's been great to meet you. And you. Thank you, Corrie. Thank you very Bye -bye. much. We'll see you soon. Bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.